Another insight the person might have as a leader is to say, you know, there is no guarantee that our company will continue to grow in its headcount. There are technological challenges out there. Maybe we do need to adopt some of these and who, who knows what that evolution will be in headcount terms. They may have a third insight, which is, you know, we're thinking either or here. Either we carry on as we used to with our 200 people, try and grow them by a few percent a year in terms of numbers and output, or there's this huge disruptive AI going on and it's just going to change completely our business model. Maybe there's a third way that's integrated in some way that we can capture new opportunities we hadn't thought about, where we can be, and I know this is something you guys know a lot about, where we can be deeply innovative to create some extra option. And it's in those environments, those thinking environments, where the fear can emerge, where the deeper thinking can emerge. And, and how valuable is that for, yes, for that company, but also thinking about the beneficial use cases of AI for society at large. Welcome to the Hell On podcast, where we talk to some of the most interesting people in the world about the future of leadership, technology, and how businesses should adapt in this interesting time. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Helon is a strategic customer experience and innovation consulting company. At Helon, we support companies to understand, innovate, and transform their business. And we've worked with companies such as Vodafone, PepsiCo, and Volkswagen, amongst others. My name is Ansi Rantanen, and I'm one of the co-hosts of this podcast together with Jakob. Vananen, who is the CEO and founder of Hellon. Uh, Jakko, good morning. How are you doing today? Good morning, Ansi. Good to be here. I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm, I'm excited to, to record this intro uh, to a, a special episode, which was recorded a couple of weeks back at the conference South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. And today, in this episode, we're going to go into the topic of leadership in the age of AI. And our guest today is a gentleman called Nick Chatrath, who we will introduce properly at the start of the episode. But before maybe going into this episode, uh, Jakko, what do you think uh, is was interesting about this conversation and why do you think people should listen to it? Yeah, well, we all know the statistics that 70% of, of all business transformations tend to fail. And I think what Nick talks about in this episode gives an interesting perspective and connection between human-centric leadership and a successful business transformation. Exactly. And uh, yeah, just to let you know, this conversation is approximately 55 minutes long, after which Jakko and myself will still reflect on some of the key takeaways from the discussion and also reflect on what the implications are for leaders and businesses around the world. Without further ado, uh, please enjoy the conversation and our reflections at the end. So we are here in South by Southwest in Austin, Texas for a series of podcasts that we're doing. Uh, my name is Ansi Rantanen and with me I have my co-host Jakko Vanenen. And today's guest is Nick Chatrath, uh, who is a renowned leadership expert and leadership coach who helps companies around the world adopt AI technologies with impact and efficiency. Nick used to work at McKinsey and now serves as managing director of the leadership consulting firm Artesian Transformational Leadership. Nick is a best-selling author, 
And his most recent book is The Threshold, Leading in the Age of AI, which I actually read on the flight here and thoroughly enjoyed. Um, so well done. I thought it was a very good, very well-researched book. So thanks for that experience. Uh, was it a 30-minute quick hop flight or you know one of these 24-hour jobbies it was uh, it was 11 hours from helsinki to dallas so that gave me ample time to to cover the book and it was really good but that's what we're going to be talking about today um but you know in in bios of course this is something that i just stole from the internet i always think it's a bit more interesting to hear directly from the person and and usually i like to ask it in this way that you know nick if, if you're at a cocktail party or on a plane and someone asks you what you do for a living, uh, how do you answer that question? Well, I think there's the slightly more mundane answer and the slightly more interesting answer. Um, the more mundane, I'm a leadership development consultant. Uh, and the answer that I think taps closer to my heart is that my purpose in life is to help leaders flourish and to help organizations thrive. And I think that purpose really taps into what I stand for because I believe every person is individual. Every person is different. I mean, take me for example, I'm half Greek, half Indian, and uh, born in the UK, educated mainly in the UK, uh, and my wife is half English, and crucially for this podcast, half Finnish. Um, so we have three daughters, and they've got this wonderfully wide gene pool, uh, and it's so good to see them grow uh, in their different ways. And just as we talk about technology today, as well as leadership, um, thinking of them as the leaders of the future. Um, so, so what, what was that? What was the journey? What's the background story of, of how you ended up writing this book? And why did you want to write this book? Well, I led a startup that was AI integrated and also brought together wearables and human coaching. And off the back of that, I had a real interest in AI. I have a maths background anyway, uh, as well as getting into the humanities later in life. And I think I realized that there was a gap in terms of how many people are thinking about the adoption of AI and particularly the leadership angle of that. Um, technology is accelerating very fast and there are a lot of brilliant books and commentary on how that is going. Um, also, there are lots of tremendous books on leadership out there. The leadership books, very few of them are rooted in a deep understanding of AI. In fact, I couldn't find one at the time. And the AI books often are taking more of a technology lens or what's the arc of future development likely to be or will AI wipe us out or take over the world in a beneficial way. And they're very interesting books and I recommend a lot of them. What I was seeing was not a lot of those AI books were deeply rooted in an understanding of human transformation, human growth. So about five years ago, I was out for a run and had this bright idea. So uh, it just all developed from there. Great. And just before we, we hop into the topic, I, I wanted to ask like a high level question on the topic of AI. I mean, of course, throughout human history, there's been a lot of different technological waves um, that have permeated society, etc. Um, is is this one different? Do you think? Uh, you know, having studied this question for the past five six years, uh, is is this technological wave different? Will this have a larger impact? Will this be easier or more difficult to manage? Or you know, looking back twenty thirty years from now, do you think this is just one of those technological waves similar to many previous ones? I think as you look back over history, every new technological wave was different to the previous ones. Um, there is a similarity that you can look back over history to see. It seemed disruptive at the time. It seemed very disruptive. There was a lot of fear around. And then a new normal emerged. So uh, the question you ask is at the heart of the matter. I mean, there are 
two camps really um, on this. One is it's yeah just like those historical technological disruptions. It's disruptive and we feel disruptive and that will pass. And then the next camp is it's all over. It's We're going to be taken over by AI. Maybe we're all going to die. Um, there's going to be significant change negatively. Um, and predicting the future is a bit of a fool's errand in this regard. Um, these technologies are incredibly powerful. Um, we've seen incredibly powerful, potentially world-ending technologies before, but in the wrong hands, we know what could happen. Um, my sense is that it's, I'm more in the first camp, but with, I mean, with a footnote that now the pace of change is so fast. And so it, we won't look back in 20, 30 years' time and say, what was all the fuss about? Um, the world is changing fundamentally. Uh, there are many beneficial AI use cases. There are also job categories that are going to be wiped out sometimes incredibly quickly and that will cause a lot of disruption and that's why it's so important i think for leaders to be ahead of the curve and well informed uh, one of one of the quotes that you lifted in the book that i really like and that i've always liked is is uh from edward wilson you know the real problem of humanity is the following we have paleolithic emotions medieval institutions and godlike technology and uh you know with with the um, coming of these tools, you know, ChatGPT in past months, these technologies are definitely getting more godlike. But um, but I, I think um, the focus of your book is, of course, these godlike technologies, but also these Paleolithic emotions, right? So these human emotions that we have. And in in your book, you talk about um, the threshold and threshold leadership. Uh, do you want to just give us a bit of an introduction into what you mean by that? Certainly. And it's interesting that you use that wonderful Wilson quote. And actually, I'm finding myself now about to explain threshold leadership in a way I haven't quite explained it before, which is to link it now in a sort of short explanation with that quote. Because technology in, in its acceleration can seem increasingly godlike. Threshold leadership is an invitation to human leaders to recognize that we can be, we are godlike. We, are, we have this divine spark in us. We have a magnificence in us that can shine. And that can sound ethereal, it can sound out there, but actually we come back to these Paleolithic emotions. And I think about occasions in my career where I absolutely cringe. Uh, for example, when I started out, my first job was as a management consultant with one of the big firms, and uh, I was good at charts. I could produce charts, and I was proud of being good at charts, and I was very arrogant as a young 20s. I like to think I'm more mature now. And uh, so I was producing these charts, and once I was in this client situation, I was in my office, and my client, Josh, stormed into my office, showing me one of the charts I'd produced about his department. And he, he had this piece of paper in his hands, almost scrunched up, and veins throbbing in his neck, and he's sort of in my face saying, why did you produce this and you know I'd produce this chart to show what his department was and what would happen in the transformation which would threaten parts of his department and I had not been sensitive about the way I had done this at all so this was before the threshold I was operating out of a much more socialized um, just following I had a view of the values of the firm that was my employer which they had this value of excellence and so I, I clung on to that value in a brittle way and I wasn't emotionally sensitive. I wasn't mature in my interaction with Josh. In fact, I replied when he was in my face, why did you do this? I replied, literally, I kid you not, I said, well, it all depends how you interpret the data. 
I mean, get that for a response. Very isn't sensitive. It? Very sensitive. You know, 27, 26-year-old Nick and this experienced business professional in front of me who was rightly annoyed and wanted to know more as well. And so I was way f far from the threshold there. I, I was adopting this brittle attitude of, you know, I was hurting inside and I hid it. I wasn't authentic with that. I wasn't honest. I didn't show the courage to say, yeah, actually, I should have had a conversation with you and let me explain more about what I was thinking and please tell me more about what you were thinking. So the threshold is an invitation to something emergent. Um, your earlier question about how the future will go, leaders at the threshold become hyper aware of contradictions around them. Um, they become more at ease with tension, more at ease with chaos. Um, part of being... I think beautifully divine in how we flow through the world is to have the humility to accept I don't know it all and also to have this strength of self-compassion, self-love to be able to operate from that strong base even in threatening situations. And you see the hype over chat GPT so much very quick. You know, threatening situations or ones that we might perceive as deeply threatening and disturbing and disruptive, those are going to come ten a penny in the coming years. And, and yeah, I, I found that a, a sort of strong red thread or, or sort of common theme throughout the book was that, um, you know, we, we should strive to become almost better connected with ourselves. Like we should strive to elevate ourselves in a way, right? Become better versions of ourselves, you know, be okay with discomfort, be vulnerable, etc. cetera. Um, uh, you know, why, why do you think that, or from, from the perspective of technological development, like, uh, why, why do you think that is? Why do you think that's important if we want to succeed as organizations, as leaders, as individuals? Like, why? Because we're the ones who are directing AI. Uh, leaders are constantly making resource allocation decisions, uh, decisions as to which avenues we pursue. And triggered leaders will not make the best decisions on those sorts of questions. Um, we saw during the recent COVID-19 pandemic how quickly humanity could pull together, leverage the best technology, frankly, just put all of the bureaucracy to one side that might require some sort of 10-year vaccine pathway and get it done in a matter of months. So with the right context, with the right focus, it can be done. And yeah, I think the reason it matters is that human leaders have something distinctive to offer against AI. It's very good on some narrow verticals of intelligence, but the way that we architect it, the way that we give it purpose, we can tap into a whole load of intelligence and wisdom, such as our embodied wisdom, uh, that AI uh, can not get even close to. And in the book, you explain threshold leadership through four pillars, uh, cultivating stillness, thinking independently, embodying intelligence, maturing consciousness. Do you, do you quickly want to just walk us through these pillars and, and explain also a bit how these came to become the pillars and, and just elaborate a bit on the model? Absolutely. And uh, I'll save you the 11-hour flight version. Um, well, yes, yeah, so cultivating stillness is all about uh, tapping into silence that we can, uh, where, where we can find a lot of wisdom. I often find with um, silence that it's a bit like you have a 
what we would call in the UK a cafetiere, or in America the French press, uh, where you put in the coffee granules, you pour in the hot water, and it's all, it all swirls about and looks very cloudy. After a while, it settles down, and then you can see a little bit more through. And I find constantly with the leaders we're working with, even on or especially on the most complex strategic questions, when they take the time to pause and find genuine stillness, then actually great insight and great productivity emerges from there. So very briefly, you know, that's what the first pathway is about. In fact, all four pathways in the book are self-contained. So what I'm proposing is not that every leader needs to implement all four pathways in their life right now. It's great. I try to implement all four. I think they're all brilliant. But actually, each pathway encapsulates the whole. If you like, there are four different lenses on what I'm inviting leaders to do. They're, each one is, as it is called, a pathway to the threshold. So each one can take you right there. Um, they're, they're holistic, if you like. What I'm doing in every pathway is helping leaders connect their thinking with their being. That's where I think the power is. Um, the second one is about thinking independently. So this is an invitation to human leaders to create environments where others can do their finest thinking. And uh, there's an American coach and author called Nancy Klein who said uh, that to be interrupted is not good. If you get lucky and you're interrupted in a conversation, that's better. But if you know in advance that you're not going to be interrupted, then the magic of independent thinking can really happen. And too often in our culture and our society, we, we live in a, a world where we're constantly talking over each other. There are distractions, there are interruptions, and that greatly impoverishes the quality of thinking that people can do. And I've seen it time and again, when they're in that right kind of environment, the quality of their thinking goes up very fast and very high. Uh, embodied intelligence is all about tapping into human um, uh, physical intelligence that we have um, there is so much more wisdom in our bodies than many leaders know in fact only this week in fact we were walking here to this podcast and one thing as I was chatting with my colleague one thing I was thinking was that my body knows something that I don't and it's quite weird for me actually I'm mean, very much working on this embodied intelligence pathway myself and for the last week I realized I've been carrying something in my body and I don't know what it is yet as we sit here in this podcast I don't know what it is and it could be one of our clients with leadership it could be something within our firm it could be something more personal but there's just something sitting in my body and I have experienced this before where for example, I was talking with a colleague and I had a sense that I should pause, I should stop, I shouldn't really lean into this conversation. And I ignored this sense. And it was a very physical thing. And I paid for it later. My body knew something. And AI has not experienced what it was like to be a child. We've experienced what it's like to be in a growing body. And part of the beauty of this embodied intelligence uh, pathway is that each of us is unique in our bodies. Uh, and then the fourth one is maturing consciousness. I mean, that's a truly deep and rich one. I'm not really sure I can encapsulate this in sort of 30 seconds or a minute, but it relates to a journey of adult development. It has its roots in a rich theory of psychological, uh, a psychological theory of adult development. And I was not at all involved in developing this theory, but it's been applied by others to the world of leadership. And I think it's highly relevant for leaders in the age of AI. And those are the links I make in the book. And in fact, the threshold is also that invitation to a, an increasingly mature adulthood in the terms of that beautiful psychological theory. 
Yeah, thanks for, for walking us through that model. Um, I, I think um, I, I love this quote uh, from the French philosopher Blaise Pascal, which is that all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Um, so, and I think what you're arguing, putting forth, is that really, um, you know, cultivating that skill uh, is critical to make better quality decisions. Because, of course, at the end of the day, um, knowledge work is all about decision making. At the end of the day, that is all we do, right? Um, um, before we hop into implications and, and what leaders should do, I, I do want to ask you the, the bigger picture question. Uh, I just recently read a fantastic book uh, from Johan Hari. Um, um, basically talking about why we can't concentrate anymore, uh, looking at it from many different angles, technological, societal, etc. And, uh, and are you at all, you know, worried about the accelerating media, you know, everything's becoming more fast paced. There's more, uh, information that we're being bombarded with everywhere. And basically every kind of almost stimulus and an incentive is, almost structured in a way to make us distracted, right? Um, have you, are you worried about this sort of mega trend? How do you think about this? Do you see this in you know, the leaders that you coach? People are having harder times concentrating. What, what, do you, what do you think about that whole sort of question, that mega trend? Yes, it is a mega trend. Um, I think I have some optimism in this area because we've known about this trend for at least 20 years in terms of the effect of distraction on human thinking. Um, whatever your gender, it's been known for a long time that multitasking is a myth. And by that, I'm referring to multitasking with more than one cognitive task. So if I go for a walk and we have this conversation, that's okay, because it's the conversation that's a cognitive part. But if I'm checking my emails while having this conversation, we've known for a long time, there's been a ton of research studies that I cannot both check my emails and have this conversation and maintain the same level of quality and speed with what I'm doing. Something's going to go wrong at some level. I'll blank on something you're saying or I'll, I'll just miss something in an, in an email. And we've all done this where I've just been slightly emotionally unthinking and then I'll spend weeks fixing it and hours and hours and hours fixing it later. So we've known this for a long time. I'm heartened that in recent years, this has come to the fore. Everyone knows about it now. And those who are developing new applications of AI are aware of it. And there's a wonderful, lots of streams there on beneficial AI. So my natural bent towards optimism takes over as well. Leaders, uh, well-rested and with good sort of, you know, purpose-led approaches, can develop software that will counter this. Definitely, the better AI gets, there's a risk that there'll be more and more distractions. And again, you saw with, for example, ChatGPT, suddenly everyone was on there and using it. And students who were maybe even writing an essay earlier, like, oh, quick, let me just put the question in there. And then academics are doing the same and uploading the software, the answer to a plagiarism software so they can catch the students out. So it's all happening. Um, so I do have a slight optimism on this. And I'd make two closing comments on your question because the two things you said in your question I think are linked. And firstly, I think leaders have great responsibility in this in terms of the culture that they set in their organization. Are they normalizing stillness? And then the other thing I'd say is that I love the Pascal quote. And yes, sit quietly in a room. Also, sit quietly under a tree. You know, nature is just such an, a grounding, inspiring thing. Um, and if each person does that for 90 minutes per week, like one 90-minute section or three 30 minutes, 
that's less than 1% of your week. So it's not a massive investment and the payoff is huge in terms of focus and connection. Uh, yeah, I think there's a reason why in Japan doctors are prescribing forest bathing uh, as, as a remedy for anxiety, right? So uh, I, I definitely do, do think that there's a big um, leverage point that, uh, that leaders can use with, with nature. Um, now, lo- looking into, you know, maybe hopping next into the, the theme of, of how all of this relates to leadership and organizations, organization change, I think there's really three questions that are interesting to tackle so number one is you know what are the opportunities like what use cases are interesting that ai technology can bring to organizations right uh the second is um organizational change and i guess this is a timeless question in the sense that uh you know organizations needed to change 10 years ago 20 years ago 30 years ago 40 years ago and very likely need to continue to change, maybe even more at a rapid pace, uh, given that you know these godlike technologies will most likely provide competitive advantage uh, in many cases. And then the third pillar is, uh, can these technologies actually help us and help organizations and help leaders change? But, um, but maybe starting from the, from the first question, so, so yesterday we were um, you know, listening to the session by the OpenAI co-founder, Greg Brockman, and he basically put forth this vision that um, knowledge workers will become more like managers, almost conductors of these AI tools, and, and these tools will become almost like co-pilots in, in our work and in how we work, etc. And I was curious to hear, what, what do you think are the more interesting opportunities that exist for organizations? Are there any, any use cases that you think are more interesting than others? And yeah, I'm sorry, I'm pouring a lot of questions in your direction. Are there any maybe personal um, use cases that you would love to see um, AI helping you with? Yeah, well, I think the metaphors that Brockman used are very interesting. A manager and a co-pilot and a conductor are quite different as I think about them. So this speaks to the fact that none of us knows exactly how the future is going to turn out with AI. At the moment, it's excelling on certain narrow cognitive intelligence. Maybe it reaches a level of general cognitive intelligence in future. Maybe beyond that, as I would define it, it at some point reaches super intelligence, which would be to master even emotional intelligence, other intelligences uh, at a human level or above. So those three metaphors, I think, speak differently because a consult, a, a conductor is uh, someone who is, if you like, in charge of and directing how the orchestra plays. There is music there that the conductor is following as an interpretation. I think the conductor is, is quite a leadership role. Manager is quite different. And I think I could see AI being given, like in the nearer term, being given delegated responsibilities in defined areas and managing. And that could apply to knowledge work, for example. Um, So if you think about, uh, there's a study recently uh, produced by Princeton that was talking about which jobs are the next 20 to get wiped out by AI. And um, call center operative was the first of the list. The next eight in the list were all teachers history teacher, English teacher, high school type teachers. This was a perspective of this particular study. And at some point, um, you know, knowledge workers 
even you know, beyond teachers are going to be challenged by what's coming up. And I actually think it's an exciting future because AI can be deployed to manage elements of that knowledge work where the human leader will still be needed to show that intuition and draw on their deep experience. Um, so I don't think it's a co-pilot analogy. I don't think it's a conductor analogy soon. I think for that, you are needing an AI that has mastered a much broader set of intelligences. Um, I think the other thing I would say in relation to um, use cases that are coming, um, there, there are some very good planning tools that are out there now. Uh, back when I started my professional career nearly 25 years ago, um, I've already mentioned charts. I felt as if I was good at spreadsheets. And being good at spreadsheets pretty much put you at the top level of the technological <laughs> edge back then. Now there are such good planning tools around financial modeling and marketing and other functions in a business where now increasingly AI-fueled tools are able to go and draw data. Um, so then there are a lot of knowledge work roles, such as research, and uh, that are going to be usurped pretty quickly with that. Um, and that, I think, is something very exciting because I draw a deep um, joy from coaching leaders and that human journey of growth. And to be freed up to do more of that, I think, is a wonderful thing. Um, yeah, I, I do think that it's, it's I, I personally agree with you very strongly that you mentioned earlier that it's super hard to predict the future. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I've never personally been the biggest fan of like futurists. I think even some studies have, have shown that, um, you know, futurists predicting the future are as accurate as, as sort of apes throwing darts, more or less, right? So so it's, it's sort of a, a random spread of, of future outcomes. Um, but I do think that what is... Um, clear is that organizations do need to uh, change, right? Uh, because a lot of these tools can provide competitive advantage. Uh, they can make things way more efficient, way more effective, um, you know, help leaders maybe save time to make decisions, you know, automate a lot of things, etc. Um, but also, I think, uh, you know, according to Harvard Business Review, you know, 70% of transformational projects fail, uh, don't uh, result don't lead to the outcomes that these transformation programs are looking for and and I mean this is a timeless question because organizations have had to transform throughout history um, but maybe because of, of this exponential growth curve that, that many of these technologies are on um, it perhaps um, you know forces organizations and leaders to need to adopt a bit more quickly. But but again, just zooming out that the timeless question may be, I mean, you've coached a lot of leaders, you've coached a lot of organizations, you've you know, really dug deep into psychology, even organizational psychology, et cetera. Uh, very broad question. What's your take on why most transformations fail? Well, that statistic of 70% has remained unchanged for many years. My take is that the transformation program is insufficiently well orchestrated and so it's bringing together many different pillars uh, so some transformations uh, a leadership group might get very excited about the human dimension and say it's a cultural thing and once we fix that everything else is going to flow uh, other organizational leaders will get very excited about the hard metrics and say just look at the trends. We need to fix this. You, know, you can see our funnel, and there's an element of the management flow. We just need to 
transform focus the transformation on there now among even among leaders who take a more nuanced view and say no we need to bring all of this together then i think there are a couple of, sort of failure modes that i've seen um one is um not bringing together uh, a, a wide range of influencing techniques in that transformation so you might have a strong role modeling leader who says, look, I'm, I'm adopting this new way of being, follow me. Um, but there are people in the organization who haven't been trained in the new ways of, of acting, or they uh, change their systems and processes. For example, let's say there's a, a transformation towards working with data in a new way. And a couple of managers in a certain office get promoted despite completely ignoring the new way of working with that data. And so others are saying, well, fine, you know, you're role modeling the leader as, as the founder, and I know what I need to do, and I'm even doing it. But look over there, he just got promoted faster than me and is completely ignoring this initiative. So then people start to, to walk off and not adopt this. And, and the other element of influencing that I think is sometimes missed out on is giving people a deep understanding of why this change is happening in a way that they can personally connect with. Um, they feel, you know, when they get out of bed in the morning, they're one element of, they actually feel excited when they think about this transformation. Um, and yeah, so the influencing would be one failure mode. Um, and then I think the final one would be uh, how well the leaders are thinking about resourcing the transformation up front. Um, it can be tempting to use a transformation to save a lot of cost, or even if there's a lot of investment of extra resources in the transformation, insufficient attention given to um, how much effort will be taken by people to transition from the before way of acting to the later way of acting. And that's an extra slice of effort. And if that is just expected to get absorbed by people in their natural working weeks, then some people will start to work extremely long hours, some people will get burned out. It, this will leak in problems in other areas and potentially in just not adopting the transformation. So that's quite a wide set of answers, but I think the stubbornness of that statistic shows that, and, and leaders are intelligent people, it just shows that these problems can come and get you from many different areas. I think a big um, source of friction is fear. Um, you know, fear of um, maybe being shown that you're not as skilled as you maybe hope to be. You know, if you're a salesperson and the organization buys a new AI-powered prospecting tool, maybe that'll make you look bad within this new sort of um, structure that we have or whatever. I, I think that fear is a big um, element in, in, in the friction in, in trying to drive change. And, uh, and and it's pretty natural, I think, especially with technologies and powerful technologies, godlike technologies. Um, you know, it's it's quite deep rooted. Um, and you know, just like hypothetically, so I mentioned the sales example, right? Say that there is, you know, you're leading an organization of 200 salespeople, and there is this like AI-based tool that allow would allow them to maybe you know, prospect better, automating, maybe even outreach messages on LinkedIn. This is all AI powered. Um, you know, of course, in, in, in every organization, you'll find the, um, the sort of early adopters and the innovators that are super excited about it. But then you'll obviously have the laggards, the people that are like fearful and opposed to this. How do you, how do you coach leaders to navigate something like that, right? Uh, what are the elements that you really try to... Um, maybe help these leaders um, yeah, do in order to 
help this team, you know, overcome this fear, maybe be a bit more opportunistic, maybe be a bit more open-minded to change, etc. Um, yeah, anything that come to mind. Absolutely. And the fear can reside in the team and can reside in the leader who I'm coaching. And I think about individuals in the past and the, the starting point is to help that leader do their finest thinking on the matters at hand. And as I do that, I mean, one, one practical way is um, I, the, the, the listening that I do and that I encourage my colleagues to do. It's, I mean, there are various levels of listening that get talked about, like, um, you know, the first level, you're just not listening, <laughs> just not at all listening. Second level, you're technically listening, but then there's some interrupting going on. Above that, maybe you don't interrupt someone, you're listening, but you're just basically pausing to reload and then you're just waiting for the nanosecond gap in what someone else says. And then in you come immediately with your the point you were going to say all along anyway. So it's still not really listening. So beyond that is this level of, okay, I'm listening in order that we can have a good exchange, a good dialogue. And I am listening to you. I'm paying attention. I actually think there's a level of listening even higher than that, which is where I am deeply fascinated by what you're going to say next. And my, I'm paying you this magnificent attention and I'm so into that that I'm creating this environment. And uh, with the right setup, the other person realizes, wow, the, other, the person who's listening to me is really encouraging me, wants me to go further, isn't interrupting me, is, is creating this lovely space, really is interested. After a while in that environment, people start doing even better thinking. And back to your sales leader example, the kind of thing that might happen is um, they, they might have insights that are deeply valuable that just hadn't occurred to them before because they were heads down hunched over just work 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 email and then into a quick meeting and then fear driving them they, so i've seen people have insights such as i do feel afraid and able to say it out loud which is powerful and then once they've said it out loud i don't have to jump in and somehow save them you know maybe they want some input from me at some point but then they've said it and then they often will start addressing it and maybe realize what it's connected to. I mean, we are creative, resourceful people. Um, another insight the person might have as a leader is to say, you know, there is no guarantee that our company will continue to grow in its headcount. There are technological challenges out there. Maybe we do need to adopt some of these and who, who knows what that evolution will be in headcount terms. They may have a third insight, which is, you know, we're thinking either or here. Either we carry on as we used to with our 200 people, try and grow them by a few percent a year in terms of numbers and output, or there's this huge disruptive AI going on and it's just going to change completely our business model. Maybe there's a third way that's integrated in some way that we can capture new opportunities we hadn't thought about, where we can be, and I know this is something you guys know a lot about, where we can be deeply innovative to create some extra option and it's in those environments those thinking environments where the fear can emerge where the deeper thinking can emerge and, and how valuable is that for yes for that company but also thinking about the beneficial use cases of ai for society at large yeah i think the <clears throat> discussion around chat gpt and the likes of it is is quite tool and application oriented at the moment it feels like people are running around blindly holding a hammer in, in their hand and trying to find a nail uh, that matches the hammer. And, and when we've been creating um, like algorithms uh, within Helen and within the, the framework of innovation, we've been always uh, thinking that what, is the, what are the right questions 
we need to answer like what are the wh- how can we uh, deliver more value how can we be more accurate how can we do this and this better and after kind of defining the question we start to figure out that what should be a new approach what should be a new workflow etc and then try to figure out like is there an algorithm is there a, a tool that could actually amplify enhance this workflow but it feels like 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 a lot of the question is now just like running around and figuring out what's the best tool and and if there is one like how how could we use it and what what's your take on this like what should be first the right question or 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 just a tool the right question i i've I've a strong view on that and interestingly when i hear myself say i have a strong view on that instantly i think well what am i missing but i do think that the right question is is the one what problem are we trying to solve it's a key foundational question and it actually links back to an earlier question in this discussion we've had around use cases that I would be excited by. I would love for an AI to be able to give a very high quality answer to my question, what problem are we trying to solve? And that's a long way off current AI. I mean, it's streets and streets and streets ahead. And if it will ever get there, I don't know, but maybe it will. Because to answer that question really well, you need to tap into a whole load of collective wisdom in the group. Um, The amount of times... I've been in meetings where people are working away, working away, and someone says, yeah, what problem are we really trying to solve? Or what's, what's really the outcome here? And then it causes people to lean back and a different kind of discussion emerges and people start connecting other parts of the constellation of human wisdom and experience that they have as a group. Maybe what happened five years ago or what's happening in a different function right now or something much more personal, whereas the focus has been entirely technical in the discussion to this point. So that discussion that then ends up with a crisp statement of the problem completely changes what the subsequent work is going to be and whether a hammer is needed or a screwdriver or whatever. So I think it's about getting the foundations strong. That's a a metaphor that I think works in this context of building a, a house on solid foundations and then working out, well, yeah, what what tools we will need comes way down the line. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it seems like we, we need to get better at thinking almost, you know, we, we need to have um, the time, the space to, you know, ask better questions to do higher, better quality thinking. And I do think, you know, in a lot of organizations that I've seen worked with, um, we're, we're all incredibly busy. <laughs> these days, right? And uh, and um, I, I do think it's incredibly important for, for organizations to build a culture of, of, you know, having a growth mindset, psychological safety, these kinds of elements where it's actually encouraged to pause, to think, to stop, etc. And, and really um, reflect on what are we doing here? What are we trying to do? Um, you know, using 80-20 thinking, what's the 20% that is creating 80% of the value, etc. It's, it's, it's really, really, um, really critical. One, one thing on this fear element that um, I can't remember if it was in your book, but, um, but at least somewhere I read it that, you know, if the amygdala is fired up and, uh, you know, if we are, um, you know, gripped by fear, we, we are... <laughs> ability to make higher quality decisions goes down significantly, right? And I do think that this is a pretty important point for leaders to acknowledge and to think about because if we're leading almost through fear and and in this 
cutthroat kind of, we absolutely have to succeed. We need to adopt these technologies. We need to do X, Y, Z. There's a lot of pressure, which leads to a lot of fear. We're going to do a lot of really bad decisions and it, it almost becomes a spiral effect, right? So um, maybe just very practically, like how do you coach, you know, leaders or middle managers to, to stop to think? Um, because these are pretty ingrained habits as well. Right, like uh, to finish the to-do list, to have a calendar full because you know maybe that gives me the feeling that I'm important and I'm doing the right things, etc. Like, are there any simple or not simple? But what are some tricks that you um, encourage leaders to to do to actually pause to think? Like, what are we doing here? What's important? What's critical? Uh, Long-winded question and and some meandering. But any thoughts on that? No, thank you. Um, and it's. Not so much tricks as um, a journey to what the leader wants. And there are many ways to that. Um, so, I mean, there are some atomic habits that people can pick up. Uh, for example, a breathing exercise. Uh, something I've been doing recently, actually, is when I'm sensing myself in my body, just start to feel anxious or triggered, is to close my eyes for an instant, take a deep breath, start to experience my breath sort of going into different parts of my body really visualizing that being grateful for the fact that i am here and then even just that in a few seconds can really center myself and then i open my eyes and i'm just more effective in that arena so there are lots of habits but you asked about coaching and it is this journey to what a leader wants um, and one way to do that is to create this thinking environment this open thinking environment that i spoke of earlier and that's where the inputs that I give as a coach, it's not an exchange of me saying, okay, I'm going to ask you a question about your goal. Then I'm going to ask you a question about this. Um, but actually, I'm allowing them that space to think for themselves. And after a period of time, when they are ready, I will ask them what they, they want to accomplish. What more do they want to accomplish with this time? And often that question takes quite a while to get to the bottom of. And once they have articulated their own goal in this moment then we can really work on it and it's that high quality articulation of the goal there's one other way that i will often use which is as a, a leadership 360 approach called a leadership circle profile and i'm not on commission but i think it's an absolutely brilliant leadership tool uh, 360 degree feedback you get from your peers from your boss your boss's boss from those who work for you from family and there are more than three million evaluators in this tool database so you then get this very rich uh, output in a circular format that helps you understand your leadership effectiveness in the context of reactive leadership or creative leadership. It links very closely closely to pathway four in my book, uh, which is maturing consciousness. Um, so often what we'll do is we'll do that 360 degree leadership assessment. Uh, the leader will then have that debriefed so they understand the detail in the report and there's a lot of it and it's very insightful and what that does is really accelerates the coaching conversation it sort of kicks off from there and in the first one or two sessions of the conversation i will similarly encourage the person being coached to say okay what are my goals now for these next few months in the coaching um, the fear is absolutely the heart of it for many people for all of us so it's about creating that safe environment all the way yeah, like I, I'm, I would be simultaneously super intrigued to, to hear, hear my sort of 360 analysis, 
but simultaneously scared shitless uh, because <laughs> I, I can imagine that it can be pretty brutal as well. Yeah, it's confidential. So I, I don't show it to anyone else. You don't show it to anyone else unless you want to. Yeah, but, but, but nonetheless, I can imagine that it can be pretty scary to, to get like an honest take on, on what kind of a leader, what kind of a person you are. Um, yeah, so, so I think um, we've, we've had a, a super interesting conversation here. Oh, actually, there's one, one thing that I wanted to ask you about as well um, before, before we just wrap up. Um, just in the past weeks, I've read that a lot of, for example, universities have been banning the use of ChatGPT. Whereas I heard of another uh, university professor uh, in the U.S. doing an entrepreneurship course where he told all of his students that you're only allowed to use ChatGPT to answer all the questions. And we're going to be using ChatGPT because this is the technology of the future and, and we need to be very skilled at using it, right? We need to be masters of, of leveraging these technologies, right? Um, what's your take on, on, on organizations grappling with questions like these? Um, how should we think about it? I mean, I guess these sort of um, decisions to ban are, are probably based out of fear, based out of uncertainty, etc. But, but, you know, these are quite timely questions, probably. Like, is it okay to allow our marketeers to use ChatGPT to generate blog posts? Is it okay to allow our salespeople to use ChatGPT to uh, do sales emails, etc.? Um, very timely questions. Any thoughts on that? Yes, uh, I think my main thought is that I encourage leaders to get really good at managing polarities. Um, a little bit back to the either-or thinking that I referenced earlier. I think leaders who will thrive in the future will be the ones who are comfortable with, let's say, a polarity is where you have two things that appear to be opposite. Uh, so it might be AI is going to wipe us all out, it's all negative, and oh no, it's all brilliant, this is an opportunity, let's use it. Um, a polarity would be to say, well, let's, let's hold both of these things. It's not about some spurious balance in the middle of the two polarities, where you add them up and divide by two. It's about holding them both at the same time in your leadership thinking. And so that will mean that the application, in terms of your question, will, will differ by the context. Um, yeah, it's quite an interesting example. I hadn't heard before of a university professor saying only use ChatGPT. With one of our clients, we have been organizing a debate and we were going to have different contributors in the debate. So three people on each side. And we were going to say to person one on each side, you are not allowed to use any technology in your preparation for this debate. To person two on each side, we were going to say, you're allowed to use the internet, but not ChatGPT. And then to person three on each side, you can use ChatGPT in your preparation for this debate and then just see what emerged. And I think that's a very interesting exercise because you would actually, at present, get different insights from each. I think the person who's undistracted by the technology and maybe asking a few friends, what do you think, what should I think about, will get a different quality of insight and probably will miss a whole load of really relevant and interesting information that ChatGPT produces in three seconds flat. So I think it very much varies uh, on the context. Taking your sales example, bearing the culture of the company in mind, both current and what they want to create, is, is so huge for that. I mean, that could be a clunking shift for a certain sales team to be mandated to do that. Yeah, I think a big part of the challenge is that humans, or the brain is almost optimized to thinking of things in black and white. It's either or, right? It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's either on or it's off. Whereas, uh, of course, in, 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 in reality, 
the truth perhaps lies somewhere in between and being able to have multiple nuanced views at the same time is, is probably the skill that, that we should be um, developing in ourselves. Um, this has been a super great conversation. We, we want to wrap it up with a couple of uh, rapid fire questions. So um, the first rapid fire question is, is uh, what is the one most significant thing that will change in organizations because of AI and these technologies? I think that techno-humanism is at the heart of this. And um, techno-humanism is about the assimilation of technology and humanity, the integration. Sometimes it is defined in religious terms. That's not actually how I'm thinking about it. I, I'm thinking really about the fact that AI and humans are getting closer and closer. So back to the polarity discussion, actually. Is it going to be AI or is it going to be humans? Who will win out? Well, we're almost beyond that question already. You think about how close our phones are to us pretty much 24 hours a day for most people. It's not a very long step from our current situation to AI-fueled in implants physically. And we already have AI-fueled phones very near us all at the time. So I think that's really going to change organizations because we talk a lot about collaboration, and I think when 90% of leaders talk about collaboration, they're talking about humans collaborating with humans, whether it's in my department, in my company, or with other stakeholders. What about AI and human collaboration? So that is going to affect different functions and sectors. It's going to affect organizational structures um, in many ways. What is one book uh, you think every leader should read? The Threshold, my book. Uh, no, uh, to give you a serious answer to, I think, the question you were really asking um, is The Promise by Nancy Klein. And the subtitle of The Promise is I Won't Interrupt You. And this is a book that is relevant for not just leaders, but any human being. Um, I think there's a great shift that can happen in our societies that will help us unlock great value in minutes in some cases if only we make this promise to think for ourselves and also a promise to be deeply committed to others thinking for themselves. And I think this is so important in our polarized society where you see debates, whether it's in politics or other social issues, where you see people not listening to each other, preloaded points of view, and it's becoming in some quarters increasingly difficult to have an environment where people are thinking for themselves. Um, so uh, this, I think, book is tremendous on that front. What is one actionable thing that you think leaders should do this year uh, to be ahead of this upcoming change that we're all inevitably going to be facing? Well, that's a tough one. <laughs> one actionable thing. What is resonating a lot with me right now is listen to your body. And I'm not just saying, do you feel tired? Do you need a bit of extra sleep tonight? But deep within, there can be insight and wisdom, uh, emotional intelligence that is there that can be expressed physically. Our bodies carry memories of the long past. And I love this, this quote that was actually inspired by Larissa McFarquhar. The fact that machines are not made of flesh makes more of a difference than we realize. So listen to your body. Fantastic. And um, on that note, is, is Nick anything you want to, um, any final thoughts, anything you want to share with the listeners, anything to wrap this conversation up? 
Well, thank you. I'm very grateful for you inviting me into this conversation. I've loved the organic nature of it. I've loved hearing about Helon. And uh, it's brilliant to be here at South by Southwest as well, um, doing a talk about AI and leadership. So yeah, I encourage people to look up my book, The Threshold, and uh, get in touch with me if they would like. I, I enjoyed the book. I can recommend it as well. It was a very, very good read. Uh, Jaco, any, any final thoughts? Anything to wrap up? <clears throat> no, I, I want to thank you, Nick. I, I, I was uh, uh, drawing here that, that basically it feels it's, it's about three things. Being human-centric, being truly present and asking the right questions. Thank you. I think that's a good way to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Jaco. Thank you so much, Nick. And thanks to all the listeners. So we are now here a couple of weeks after the South by Southwest interview with Nick Chatrath. I have my co-host Jaakko here and uh, we are going to have a short conversation about the interesting takeaways from this conversation that we had with Nick, uh, the implications and, and what we're going to do about it. So, so that is really what we're going to be digging into now. Um, what kinds of thoughts and takeaways came out of the interesting conversation that we had at South by. So, uh, Jaco, I think that's a pretty good and natural place to start, actually, uh, on the most interesting takeaways. So we had this one hour conversation. I think we both listened to it in the past couple of days, re-listened to it. Um, for you, what were the more interesting takeaways or most interesting takeaways from the conversation? Yeah, thanks. I, I, I think uh, one of the interesting uh, takeaways was that, that when Nick uh, described that uh, humans have a godlike feature. So what uh, what I took away from that was that, that it's really about figuring out what is the like the roles and positioning of AI and uh, business leaders tomorrow like for sure ai will uh, exponentially increase uh, kind of our capability to you know make rational decisions but the question is that do we actually have more decisions to make in the future or do we just need to be better at it and how can we actually complement with our human features uh, kind of the AI in the future in order to, to kind of uh, have better clarity and, and uh, lead in a better uh, way. So I think it remains for the human, it remains for the leader to really decide in a certain moment, in a certain context, what is really relevant, what is really significant, and then make decisions uh, based on that. And it remains uh, the leader's kind of own personal uh, uh, task and capability to have a strong character, to have a strong gravitas, uh, to make sure there is emotional engagement when you lead a company, an organization from point A to point B. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree with that. I think a big takeaway uh, from the conversation was that almost for me, like that we, we need to get better at being human. We need to like upgrade ourselves almost. Um, 
Uh, and it doesn't actually, I, I don't think it means to upgrade ourselves. I think it just means becoming more ourselves in a way. Um, and, and yeah, for me, one of the bigger takeaways was that, that technology adoption is, is at its core a human problem. Uh, it's, it's very often um, approached through a technology and, and tool-based thing. You know, I've seen a lot of digital transformations um, where, you know, we implement Microsoft Teams and, and now we've done our digital transformation kind of a thing, right? Like it's a very tools-first approach, whereas obviously that the, the behaviors and, and the human element, I think, is core at making any kind of, uh, you know, transformation or any kind of adoption succeed. And uh, I, I do think that, you know, as these tools get more and more and more powerful, uh, I think we should aim to become better at being human, not better at being human, but bringing more of ourselves to work almost. It sounds very like, it's interesting, it sounds very like, you know, like soft and like woo-woo and very like hand wavy. But, but I think, uh, I think ultimately, um, that for me was was actually a big takeaway. And I think that, um, you know, that the quality of, of thinking needs to improve, right? Because if as an organization, you're not adopting these technologies, if you're not um, sort of on the ball, you know, ahead of the curve, um, you know, there, there'll be hundreds of startups that will be, there'll be your competitors that will be, et cetera. So really the quality of thinking, um, the quality of, of the, the sort of, yeah, thinking. And, and I think as humans, you know, we have, we have like wisdom within ourselves and we need to sort of tap into that, right? Because I think technology is what they can uh, provide is like, they, they don't really have wisdom. They're great at compute. They're great at uh, calculation. But as you mentioned, you know, what is important, prioritization, uh, what should we focus on, what kind of problems should we tackle, I think becoming really good at this is probably going to be uh, super critical to success. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I could uh, strongly agree with that. Uh, Nick also talked about uh, embodied wisdom. And first, when I listened to it, I, I, I would say I, I thought, uh, well, that's quite a soft concept. But actually, like reflecting on, on what you said, I think it's definitely the, the right direction of, of thinking that what is kind of what is the kind of proportion of intelligence that uh, like does not fit into the world of, of AI? What is the kind of amount of social intelligence uh, we actually uh, are navigating ourselves and, and the whole organizations uh, every day. And, and how do we actually get better in kind of understanding the role of, of this kind of, let, let's call it social intelligence or whatever there is between uh, human beings uh, in order to, to get, kind of get better in, in understanding what, what the role can be in when leading an organization, when when really uh, making sure a transformation can be successful, uh, etc. So I, I think the better AI gets, the more we will actually start to realize. Yeah, definitely. I, I fully agree on that. And I think this is a good segue into the next question, which is really the implications uh, from this conversation. Um, you know, what do you think the implications are for organizations, for leaders, uh, 
yeah, given given Nick's sort of perspective. Yeah, <clears throat> well, I, I think um, as was mentioned uh, in the interview that that the statistics uh, are telling the story that 70% of the uh, business transformations are still failing uh, globally, and and that uh, that proportion of failure has been there for ages and. To be frank, I don't see any any uh, you know a- AI is not gonna change that statistic. But because uh, many of the research is actually say saying that that one of the biggest uh, reasons for companies transformations uh, failing is that that the people in the organization uh, are uh, forgotten. So so. I think what the implication here can be that 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 if we kind of uh, when when AI gets better, we start uh, thinking as leader that that we need to be better in this kind of embodied wisdom, uh, social intelligence, figuring out whether we as leader our own characteristics, kind of on the emotional or social side, are good enough. And and that kind of thinking can actually be um, a uh, kind of path to to actually have uh, transformations that are highly successful because of their kind of weight on human centricity. Yeah, I, I think that there is. I mean, there there's a lot of like organizational implications from this, but there's also like quite personal and individual uh, implications. Uh, you know, I would argue that we need to get better at making decisions. We need to get better at prioritizing. We need to get better at understanding what's important. We need to get better at, uh, as you said, like um, understanding the human perspective, et cetera. And, and actually just even a very simple personal, impl- I mean, there's a ton of studies that if you don't sleep well, you're going to be making worse decisions. If you're not like moving your body, you're going to be making worse decisions. So I think like uh, a good thing that, you know, for example, Aura has um, made very common is that people are tracking their sleep and stuff. But I, I think that um, taking care of yourself physically and emotionally is is um, more important than ever because again the quality of decision making uh, is going to uh, I think increase right because if you're not on the ball if you're not um, really adopting and experimenting and testing out and and really being human centric in, in in your transformations and customer centric etc like it's it's going to not be successful right like that is quite fundamental and i think that i think that like another implication is that um um from an organizational perspective i almost think that we're going to have to forget the word uh, transformations because transformation implies that there's a start and there's an end right now we've transformed we've done the transformation we're now agile we started here and now we're there but i think if we which i would argue if we accept the premise that you know, every single year, technologies are going to get better. Every single, like even in the past weeks, I think we've seen every single week something new, very interesting in 
you know, the, the sort of generative AI space. Like in the past couple of weeks, you know, uh, tools like Baby AI or AutoGPT or, or whatever these are, like have been causing ripples. So this means that, you know, as an organization, even as a team, right, like you're going to need to adopt um, new technologies and new ways of working and new tools like all the time. So, so a transformation is, is it's going to be um, never ending, which I think is a cool thing. I think it's a really interesting opportunity. But I think there, you know, things like the growth mindset and just having a mindset of continuous learning, but also having perhaps this humbleness as, as leaders and, and as, as organizations to say that we don't know the answers. We don't exactly know what our company is going to look like in a year or three years. It's scary, but it's also, I think, um, uh, something that needs to almost be a part of the, the, the philosophy, right? So I think, I think a change in almost like leadership philosophy is also needed. I, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, well, <clears throat> well maybe I can uh, uh, continue on that. I, I think you're definitely right in, in, with the idea that, that uh, the transformation is uh, a continuous process, not, not a project. But still, I think the reality in many large global organizations is that uh, they have to be planned, they have to be budgeted, uh, and then in that sense, uh, and they, they, they need to uh, have uh, measurable resu results. So in that sense, they, they still have these starts and, and ends. And, and what we've learned uh, at Helen uh, when working with global large organizations and their transformation is that kind of the most, uh, let's say, comp the most complicated thing is to be uh, human-centric when uh, allocating the, the transformation investments because it's really hard to make the soft things, i.e. culture, uh, focusing on, on really kind of the, the skills, human mindset, skills, mindsets, yeah. uh, and turning those uh, into hard in the investment meetings. So really like what is the ROI on a certain mindset, a certain kind of cultural momentum movement, which kind of might be the target. And because of that, because uh, it, it's really hard to, to squeeze those soft things into an Excel sheet and then make decisions on it. Because of that, I think many times uh, those decisions are just left out and not made. And then um, the focus on the transformation is on process and platform. And then the people is suddenly uh, forgotten. And, and this is something of interest that has been to us uh, since many years. Um, in 2017, we started to, to uh, explore and create algorithms uh, at Helen to really uh, focus on this issue that how do we turn the soft into hard? And like nowadays, there is also a, a stack of different uh, tools that we are using, for example, really uh, creating, uh, you know, return on customer experience scenarios or return on employee experience scenarios that actually are kind of helping uh, companies to prioritize the investments in the this soft area. But I think implications uh, 
uh, for leaders, but also uh, for ourselves, I think this time calls to even put more emphasis on that development. Yeah, no, no, definitely. That's uh, that's a super good point that you uh, that you brought up. Uh, and of course, every single elephant needs to be eaten uh, a bite at a time. So, of course, these big transformations, which I guess do need to be continuous, need to be chopped down into sort of subcomponents and need to have some tangible metrics uh, to be tracked so that we know what uh, what we're doing. Um, based on this conversation, out of curiosity, just to wrap up. Uh, is there anything you're going to do differently, Jakko, on a personal note? Yeah, I think maybe continuing on on what I just uh, said, I think uh, we are kind of definitely going to double down on our efforts in kind of creating tools and solutions on helping companies turning these soft uh, features of organizations and change into hard metrics uh, and investment scenarios. Because that's definitely something that that will be of higher demand. Uh, the more uh, AI-related rational solutions are out there. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, I actually thought about this. What I'm going to be doing differently, and I have uh, a very, very simple, concrete thing that I'm going to be aiming to do differently. Uh, you know, I think in the conversation, the there there was mentioned this book, the the Promise book. Uh, where you sort of make a promise to not interrupt people. I have a bad habit of interrupting people. And I think uh, what I understood from the conversation is that it can really kill the flow of ideation, the flow of creativity. And I have a bad habit of doing that with my own team as well. So uh, I actually think that if we want to be making better decisions, we need to get better at listening. And this is something that I personally aim to do. So uh, yeah, some, something that I thought would be would be good for me to commit to. Sounds good. Cool. Well, hey, thanks so much, Jakko. Um, and uh, we will yeah, wrap this conversation up here. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes. Thanks. Thank you.